Welcome back, listeners, to another exciting episode here at Matt Goes to the Movies. We are back in the extended podcast universe for a little slice of the internet we call Rob's Reviews. Tonight, we are taking it back to the year 2000 for Guy Ritchie's second feature film, Snatch. Set in the seedy underworld of London, Snatch features two main plots that at times dance around and then straight through each other while really making excellent use of its ensemble cast. Best described as a crime comedy, it released on December 6th in the U.S. to a final box office return of $83.6 million against a budget of $10 million. Currently sitting at a 74% critical rating and a 93% audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes, Snatch is a film I routinely find myself recommending to anyone who tells me they've never seen it. So to help break it down with me, I'm happy to be back with the Tommy to my Turkish, the Rosebud to my cousin Avi, my younger brother Eric. Eric, welcome back to the show. I'm not really a big fan. You always give me the like the Robin role when there's... I just don't like it. <laughs> That's the point. So, Eric, we, we have another co-host with us tonight. Uh, someone who has been a reoccurring character here on, on the Matt Goes to the Movies podcast network. Uh, I've recently mentioned him as someone who actually defends the live-action Super Mario Brothers movie. So I suppose oh. take that... Take that into consideration when listening to his opinions, but uh, I am happy to welcome for his first appearance on the show, my buddy BJ. Uh, BJ, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you. Um, it's it's kind of funny because I've described the the version of Matt Goes to the Movies when Matt and I are on together. It's It's almost like we kind of been doing that show for a couple of years before he ever actually recorded something on and put it on the air. Um, Cause it, that's just kind of what it sounded like when we would do it. And, and really that kind of almost started, you know, when you and I were just driving around Youngstown, Ohio, um, hanging out and this is, this is kind of what we did. So I'm, I'm really excited uh, that you get to join us on air and, uh, and break down this movie. So uh, yeah, let's uh, introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, hi, everybody. Uh, my name is BJ, short for Bernard Joseph. And uh, I am really excited to be here, Rob. I'm really excited to, to join in on your on your show here. I've been listening, you know, uh, here and there. But you're kind of starting me off two strikes in the hole, aren't you? <laughs> it's like, first thing, he defends the live-action Super Mario Brothers movie. I defend it on the grounds that they took... A, a risky shot you know they they tried to do something i'm not saying it worked <laughs> they tried to turn a, a basically storyless video game into something that had like a breathing world behind it i'm not gonna say it worked but they tried. Yeah, i mean that's a hell of a venture for sure very brave. yeah for sure so yeah. Rob and I do go all the way back to college. Uh, you know, we were, God, 19, 18 when we met, and we wasted so much time discussing everything under the sun and random about the different kinds of movies that we enjoyed, uh, including the one that we're talking about tonight. That was a formative film for me and Rob early in our friendship. And, uh, yeah, I just think it's really cool to get the chance to come back and chat for your audience about it. Yeah, really looking forward to it. What's funny, BJ, and I don't know if you realize this, but this movie actually came out within like two or three months of when you and I met for the first time. So I, I just think that's kind of cool that mm -hmm. we ended up choosing this. Yeah, I was going to so, say, didn't this happen uh, like right at your freshman year of college pretty much? 
Uh, it did actually. Yeah. Yeah. December of, uh, of, uh, 2000. So that kind of shows everybody who's listening exactly how old I am <laughs> and how yeah. old DJ is too. The year yeah. 2000, that was, that was seven years ago, right? It, yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes, it was only 10 years ago. I said this last one we did. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll die on that hill for sure. Uh, so BJ, since this is your first appearance on the show, um, you know, Matt started uh, the Matt goes to the movie show with basically just sitting around talking into the bottom of his phone, talking about the Skywalker saga and uh, and has certainly grown and, and grown and grown from there. So in the spirit of how the show started and to kind of give listeners an idea of of who you are and, and the kinds of things that you like. I would love for you to share your Star Wars movie power rankings with the audience. Uh, by the way, there is one film in particular that if it's rated too high, I'm just going to cut the recording and, and that'll just be the end of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am happy to do so. So first thing, does anyone ever not have Attack of the Clones at the bottom? I don't think so. And not if they are doing it right. I mean, I think objectively it's just the worst, right? I yes. had Rise of Skywalker at the bottom for me. Ooh. You know, that's one whole other topic for a whole other day. Yeah. But the opinion <laughs> on Rise of Skywalker of the general public continues to get worse movie. and yeah. worse. It just, it does, the further away from the release of that movie we get, the more people seem to dislike it. You know, well, which is I'm, weird because it's typically the opposite, isn't it? It's like uh, things, t- you know, people tend to relax their standards over time and, and they appreciate something after some time has passed. But like, yeah, I, think the, the prequels, I think it was just a kind of a stinker. The prequels and Hayden Christensen are nowhere near as hated now as they had been previously. Yeah, that's right. People Particularly after starting uh, to appreciate uh, the Phantom Menace in Jar Jar Binks. I made mm. that second part. Of- you did. <laughs> No, I know some fans who are, are younger who do actually appreciate Jar Jar. Well, that was the other thing is like, I, you know, and I hate the gatekeeping. Star Wars is pretty notorious for the gatekeeping and fandom. Oh, it's the worst. Um, and if I, I've said I it once, that, I've said it a million times. Nobody hates Star Wars like people who love Star Wars. Yeah, right. And I, I say so like, whatever you like, you like, man. And I, there has to be a last place. I'm sorry. It's not that I hate Rise of Skywalker. It's just it's not no. favorite, you know. I've got Attack of Clones at the bottom. I've got Phantom Menace uh, just ahead of that um, because the ridiculously awesome Darth Maul uh, versus Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan lightsaber fight cannot save that film. Um, <laughs> now, I put I put Solo in next. So I suppose, wait a minute, if we're counting Solo and Rogue One, that would make it number nine. Number nine, yes. Number nine solo. Uh, then I have Rise of Skywalker at number eight because while that movie misses just about every pitch, the ones that it hits, it drives pretty well. Mm. Um, Rise of Skywalker is a collection of bad moments strung together. But when you get a good moment, it's a pretty solid payoff. Mm-hmm. Was my feel on that one. I like that. I can agree. I with do. That. I do. Force Awakens next because while I really enjoyed Force Awakens, it's just it's so it it it's on the wrong side of the homage line. It's on the wrong side of the homage line for me because it's just the same movie as New Hope. So many questions that 
never got answered that I'm angry at that movie about, or at least were never answered on screen. They answered how the heck Maz Kanata got, uh, got the saber from Bespin, but they didn't do it on screen, so I hate them. J.J. Abrams did his thing, and there was a lot that was cool with his thing, even though his thing was way too close to George Lucas's thing. <laughs> Ryan Johnson comes in and does, does his thing, and Ryan Johnson does his thing brilliantly, but clumsily. And then the reaction to Last Jedi was just so bad from so many people. Like who? That... <laughs> okay, so I had Force Awakens then. Then I go to Revenge of the Sith because the Obi-Wan, Anakin, Mustafar lightsaber fight does save that film. Mm. Yeah, that, that has unbelievable... Uh, that that duel just the way that it's the way that it was filmed the way that it was staged it was hyper dramatic it was over the top there are moments in the late part of that movie in the third act of that movie where you're seeing anakin become vader that are really solid moments and you know it's it's becoming gauche to hate on hayden christensen these days because he has done more work since then in the SWU as Anakin that sort of shows you when you give him good dialogue yeah. and you give him good direction, he's going to do fine. Yeah. You know, uh, a great actor can't overcome shit writing and shit direction. Well, the, the only actor in the whole trilogy who was, as I like to say, able to turn chicken shit into chicken salad was uh you and McGregor. McGregor. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because Natalie Portman, great actress. Goddess. She's floundering. Samuel L. Jackson, great actor. He's floundering. Uh so after Revenge, I do put Last Jedi there, Rob. I put Last Jedi, I suppose, in fifth. Yeah, that's your top five. That's our show, everybody. Yeah. Good night. Good night. <laughs> Have a wonderful time. <laughs> <laughs> I recognize I recognize all the clunk and all the potholes in Ryan Johnson's script, which is so weird to me because from watching Knives Out and Glass Onion, you know he can write tight. You know yeah, he can capable, write complicated. Right? But there was just like it hit missed his script for, for TLJ, like missed its final editing pass. You know, there was just there was clunk all over that script. And it derailed, in a lot of ways, what was such a great shift in themes, you know? And it forces you to go back and look at Luke. And you understand that his failure as a teacher was inevitable. There's too much of his father in him. It's been there right from 1977. Call it destiny, call it genetics, call it the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It just shows you that Luke and Anakin as young men are very similar. Luke is, of course, not subjected to a childhood of slavery. So that's some trauma that he doesn't have to wade through. But they're both brash. They're both leap before you look. They're shoot first, shoot later, shoot some more, and maybe ask a few questions. But it shows that they are both totally susceptible to the dark side, to 
to that moment of weakness. Luke had much greater support around him in the uh, persons of, say, Han and Leah, you know, Leah, who is morally upright. He was he still had that Skywalker thing that caused him to have that moment of failure that just compounded itself into the disaster of Ben, you know, waking up right at that moment, you know, that, that, uh, that betrayal. And, uh, that is why Luke was just sort of destined to fail. But the thing about the Jedi lineage, all of the teachers fail. Yoda fails, Ben, uh, Obi-Wan fails. Um, they all fail, but in their failure, they get the next generation to succeed. And Luke just continues that tradition because he had his failure, but he is able to get Ray to succeed. So that, that theme just continues through. And Ray, nobody, Ray being nobody was one of the best thematic the choices. Best they, yeah. Was, oh, I got so mad. I got mm-hmm. so mad when Palpatine survived. Somehow Palpatine returned. Oh, man. Yeah, that was, of all the things I disliked about Last Jedi, the thing I liked most was they just made her nobody. I love mm-hmm. that. I wish they would have kept Whoa. that. Anyway, to finish up, I got Rogue One in spot number four because I can't put it above any of the original trilogy. I just can't. There's something in me that won't let me do that. But Rogue One is fully diesel, fantastic movie. The way that they got you to care about this collection of scamps, this full-on collection of, of you've never heard of these guys. There's no mythology for any of these guys. And Chirrut Imwe and and uh Bayes Malbus and they just show up out of nowhere and you're just like I am having feelings about what is happening <laughs> <laughs> and then for the top I go New Hope or I go Return of the Jedi New Hope yeah. Empire. But that is my Star Wars ranking Clones, Phantom, Solo, Rise of Skywalker, Force Awakens, Revenge of the Sith, Last Jedi, Rogue One, Return of the Jedi, A New Hope, Empire. Now that we've kind of got uh, your ranking, it'll give people sort of an idea of your perspective and things like that. You guys want to go ahead and talk about Snatch? So now that we've got that double entendre out of the way, we're going to go into a spoiler free segment. So if you've gotten this far and you're curious about this movie, maybe you've never seen it. um, I would chastise you, but that's just not really my thing. Uh, And you're trying to figure out, should you watch this? Um, I don't know really that it's streaming anywhere right now. It's not on any of the, like the really easily accessible streaming sites, I guess is what I would say. So uh, BJ, I'm going to, as the, as our first time guest, I'd like you to kind of go first uh, spoiler free, what would you say to a person who has never seen this movie to entice them to watch it? What would you tell them about it? I would say that if you enjoy a crime caper with uh, a lot of really snappy dialogue, snappy dialogue, then this is the movie for you. It's it's a very guy movie. I mean, this is this is you know, we we have like two female characters in the whole show. It is a quintessential guy movie in that it's it's peppy, it bounces along, it's got all these wonderful quotable lines. It's got this interweaving plot that that, you know, 
really just dances pirouettes with your MacGuffin ending up all over the place, right? How many places does that darn diamond go that it's just super duper enjoyable with a very energetic cinematog cinematographical style? Well done. Right? Did you just make up a word? No, he, I may he have. Nailed it is what he did. I may have. But yeah, I mean that's that's Guy Ritchie. He's his his camera is is coked out of its mind, right? Like before filming any scene, Guy Ritchie just grinds up a bunch of Adderall and feeds it to his camera and he lets it go. Yeah. That's actually we're gonna get into that later. Eric, what would you tell to somebody that had so never like, seen this movie to get them I, into it? Think about the the term crime comedy. You mentioned it in our intro. Crime comedy I'm not sure that there really was one of these before that. I mean, Ocean's Eleven, did that come out before Snatch? I don't know. But That's another film that kind of kept coming up in, in my mind as I was thinking about this movie. Yeah. Just, so uh, like, sort of the Brad Pitt connection is there, but yeah. It, I, it the, Ocean's, you know, uh, Oceans was the sexy version, though. This is the, we're going right, to just sort the, of. That was the polished uh, United States Hollywood version. This is the dirty streets of London version. I will say, longtime listeners know I am a whore for heist movies. Okay, I will absolutely get right down on my knees for a heist movie. Love it. Um, interestingly enough, this heist occurs right at the very beginning, and there's really not much of a heist after that. It's it's a lot of uh, scampering and uh, butterfingers and yeah, accounting for mistakes. Like there's a lot of nonsense afterwards. Um, I, I think that this is without a doubt. I mean, I, I'm just going to tell you right now, this is one of my most favorite films in my life. So I, I don't know what else to say besides that, because I think the most ringing endorsement I can give it is it's one of my most favorite movies in the history of my life. It's hard to do much better than that. Um, so if I was to try to explain this to somebody and tell them why they needed to see it, I love how characters are just kind of introduced and plot lines just seem to pop up nearly randomly every few minutes. And all of these are just like somewhat loosely connected. Uh, this pacing is so fast. It really just keeps the movie moving throughout. You never really know what characters the story is going to focus on next. And because of the pace, you don't realize just how connected the whole thing is until the very last scene. And, and I absolutely love this about this movie. But what really occurred to me on my most recent rewatch of this is that this really at times is almost like sketch comedy with scumbags. Like each scene <laughs> is kind of its own standalone thing. It's like they connect. the whole film is like an anthology, isn't it? Like until yeah. the the timelines meet up, right? Like until the, the, um, the, the plot connects everybody because at that point then it really explodes you know you talk about like innocuous ingredients and chemistry like this thing by itself is not dangerous and this thing by itself is not dangerous mix them and you nuke your kitchen you know like that's that's this movie yeah each scene really i mean it just kind of is almost its own standalone thing that has laugh out loud moments in almost every single one so it, it's really like like i said i mean if, if you imagine like <clears throat> Like if SNL just focused on the London underground, you could almost do it this way um, and it would it would work. So that's kind of about as much, I think, as we can say about this movie, guys, without getting too much into spoilers. So listeners from here on out, 
we're in full-on spoiler mode. And we're going to move into our uh, next segment called Least and Likes. <clears throat> so what we're going to talk about is what works well in this movie. Uh, maybe if there's something that doesn't work well, you can get to it. Uh, what is your favorite scene? And uh, uh, BJ, we're going to start with you. Um, we're in full spoiler mode now. So yeah. uh, what what works for this movie? Why is this a movie that we decided we wanted to cover? Um, and if you also have a favorite scene, go ahead and, and uh, give us that when you're done. There are so many things that work in this movie that I could, you know, if I were to enumerate them all, I'd be sitting here for four hours. But I <laughs> could just watch the movie. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. yeah you it's like just... that worked, that worked, that worked, <laughs> that worked, that worked. Anyway. It worked a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the first one, – one of the things that, you know, when I sat down to rewatch this in prep for coming on here, something that sort of jumped out at me that I hadn't seen before – I mean, I'd obviously seen it, but I'd never really thought about it – is just how innocuous the beginning of the movie is, right? Because if you, if you have an expectation of Guy Ritchie's work, frenetic camera – Big noises, big sounds, cars exploding. Well, not not that's more Michael Bay, but you get what I'm saying, right? Hyper energetic. Yeah, the up and down. There's quiet moments. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But this movie opens just with three guys in a room, Turkish on his inner monologue, right? And there's there's nothing much going on. And they're just talking about something. They're sort of spooling out a little trail of information for you. What do I know about diamonds? You know, absolutely worked for me yes. is, is Frankie Four Fingers, Hasidic <laughs> Jew. Yes. With the little coming in. Twists. Yeah. You know, and then it just stays in this very mellow kind of pace all through the, the credits and everything. Right. And then when Frankie rips off his fake belly and there's the guns on the, the you know, the sort of shoulder, the chest placard that he's wearing, that's when it just goes full Guy Ritchie. You've got your camera spinning around. You've got hard rock underneath. You've got people pointing those guns at people in very unfriendly ways. You know, it, it starts off with this very subtle sort of we're gonna we're just gonna watch this little movie it's gonna be oh look here's some jewish guys talking about theology and then suddenly you know and then you're just you're off to the races so fast once they get into the back room at the jewelers right I love this opening just when you've get the the Jew the orthodox Jews crossing over the security cameras and and I really noticed on this watch through just how much that security camera motif kind it's of everywhere. plays that theme is gonna, everywhere. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. So much of this movie is you seeing it through security cameras. It's it's kind of wild. The next thing that I absolutely love that's full on work for me is the character title cards. Because you get the character title cards in this goofy montage, right? But the montage also sets up your backing story and establishes your character relationships. Because uh, during Mickey's title card, he's got a purse. And he tosses it to Vincent. And Vincent pulls out, you know, a handful of moody gold right? <laughs> nice. for his title card. 
And in the first scene where you're actually seeing Vincent, he's talking about, you know, where'd you get the dog? Saul's asking him. He says the gypsies threw it in with a, a load of moody gold. The, the way that those title cards come in and it just, it's something that you almost have to do as a director because you've got this cast of like 20 characters that you're going to have to keep track of. And it's also sort of Guy Ritchie presenting, look, this is going to be a movie. It's going to be fun. You know, he's, he's just laying it out in this very presentational style of these, the, each character getting their own title card during this introductory montage. And uh, that, for me, was something that really, really worked, just to set the pace, to set the sort of mood of the movie, and to establish those character interrelationships before we really even have any movement of the plot whatsoever. You know, I kind of noted that as well, that I, the, this intro, just for whatever reason on this watch through, really resonated. Like, wow, that's kind of interesting that it feels kind of an unconventional way because we've met two of these characters, three of these characters really before this montage starts, we're pretty much introduced to the whole ensemble before the, before we ever actually meet the character themselves. And it's, it's just such a cool way of, of, of making that move through the, where they're passing that next object and the object turns into something else when it, when it gets tossed off screen. I really dig it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other things that worked for me, some couple minor detail type things rather than sort of like broad overarching theme stuff. Bricktop's Coke bottle lenses and his glasses. When have you ever seen a character that you are supposed to be afraid of wearing <laughs> something as ridiculous? He could see like all the moons of Pluto. From as those right absolute, those <laughs> absolute Coke bottle glasses. But here's this character wearing this nerdiest of facial appliances, right? <laughs> and the the first scene that you get with him, or or uh, I can't recall exactly what he, he absolutely chills your blood. Bricktop's Coke bottle glasses. The simplicity of what gets Turkish involved in all this. He just wants a caravan. Yeah. Doesn't take much, does it? That's that's the genesis of really the movie, isn't he, it? He just he just wants a caravan. He just wants something reasonable to do business out of, right? You know, all this other stuff could have gone on without his involvement in any way, shape, or form. But he just wanted a caravan. And then everything hits the fan after that. <laughs> so where does he actually park this? Is that like under a bridge? Like I've always been trying to figure that out. Bridge-ish, right? Like yeah, I wondered. Maybe it's yeah, it's such bad. it's such a humble request. Everybody else wants this. <laughs> I love the word. Humble. Everybody else <laughs> comes into it wanting this 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 diamond the size of a fist, and Turkish just wants a caravan. Just wants a reasonable business place like. But this poor guy. He can't. He's he just, can't get it. He's just trying to reasonably run a criminal enterprise. I mean, god <laughs> damn. <laughs> Other things that I like: Dennis Farina as a nebbishy character. Right. Dennis Farina most almost always plays like a bona fide tough guy, but cousin Avi in this is just impatient and nudgy 
and just oh so annoying but he carries it off which is a good word i like that he carries it off mickey's pack especially blue windbreaker guy who i believe is named darren because mickey is always seen consorting with his five or six pikey fellows and they always just lean their heads in together and it seems to me like blue windbreaker guy is sort of like mickey's lieutenant He's like the number two pikey in command. Yeah, and and he just he just has some small moments here and there. Does Blue Windbreaker guy and the other pack of pikeys that are just really, really, they're 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 minor, but they're so tasty. Avi's flight montage, the sequence of shot, <laughs> popping a pill, the taxi, <laughs> right? That that sequence of three or four exact same shots that they play. Whenever Cousin Avi flies, and it happens like I think three times in yeah, the film, including the very right. end. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. I absolutely loved that. My favorite scene compositionally, like what the camera is doing, is when Bullet Tooth Tony has Saul on the ground and this is when Boris the Bullet Boris the Bullet Dodger, that scene, because Mr. Desert Eagle .50 is foreshortened to the camera. So it looks as big as a tree branch <laughs> muscled right next to Saul's head while Bullet Tooth Tony is interrogating him. And Cousin Avi sort of like cranes his head down into the shot. You know, so Avi is going between Saul's head, which dominates the bottom third of the frame, bottom right-hand third. And the the middle and top left-hand third is just Mr. Desert Eagle point five oh, yeah. <laughs> Like it's his own character. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's accredited, he's accredited uh, role in the show. Yeah. Mr. He's actually, he's actually out there holding signs up right now. Yeah. With the, uh, he's he's on the, the picket SCA line. Strike, yeah. He's on the picket lines, Mr. Desert Eagle Point Five O. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Desert Eagle Point Five O, played by Desert Eagle Point Five O. Um, and you've got you know Avi, who's sort of moving his head between being right up in Saul's grill and looking up at at Bullet Tooth Tony. But you've got this tight camera right on all three of their heads and just compositionally the way that this shot was put together was was absolutely gorgeous to me i loved that boris's little dance when he gets out of the trunk of the car he's got <laughs> the he's bag kind of, he's kind of like bitching a little bit right but he's like kind of on his own monologue and internal monologue but it well, somehow comes out out loud yeah, he, he gets out of the trunk of the car and he's in the street and he's just sort of very tentatively stepping around because he's got the bag on his head still. He's still tied and, up to his wrists are bound together. Yeah, he's tied up. The bag is on his head and he's just kind of tentatively stepping around like he's trying to find the curb or something to just locate where he is. Way, beautiful use of music in this moment yes that you're talking about yes that. and uh that was uh another thing that really really worked for me uh last thing that really worked for me that i want to get into is the abrupt flip of the end credits music because it mm. goes to the what is it called don't you just know it yeah 
have that. This real old timey rock and roll song. Like that's back when it was called rock and roll. It wasn't rock. It wasn't rock and roll. It was rock and roll. You know, back in that 50s chubby checker sort of joint. And just it is so contrary to the vibe of the rest of the movie because it's just this sort of joyous, goofy, you know, sort of bopping tune. And it immediately serves as just sort of a, a, a wake up, you know, sort of a palate cleanse for the craziness that you have just been through. The only thing it, it shares with the rest of the movie is that concept of craziness because it's this abrupt shift into this very antiquated uh, sort of, of music. But I absolutely loved that. I have a couple of things that did not work for me. Um, just a couple. Oh, before like, we get into those, what's your favorite scene overall? Or was it the, the bullet tooth Tony one you were talking about? Well, compositionally, it is the bullet tooth Tony one that I'm the, the, the one with desert. Like that's my, my favorite visual scene. Probably dialogue wise. I do not know that I could pick. Mm. It's it a lot. Is it's so hard. yeah, it's like an embarrassment of riches. With it is film. so hard to pick a favorite scene dialogue wise. Um, you have given that your guns have replica written on the side. <laughs> yeah. You have what uh, that was. Yeah, you that that right there. People ask me, what does it look like when you roll a natural twenty on an intimidate check? That is what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> right. But what does it look like when you roll a natural 20 on an intimidate check? And the answer is that scene, Vinnie Jones, Snatch. Yeah. yeah. Ought to precipitate you into shrinking along with your presence. <laughs> but uh, the few things that didn't work for me. The final leg has a bit of a letdown, I feel like, because you have a, rev- uh, a, a resolution of sorts on the diamond chase, but you still have to handle Mickey's fight, right? That, the way that that, because the, 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 the clip is so frenetic during the diamond chase and things are coming so fast and so crazy and avi pull your socks up right all this crazy stuff and then just anything after that is going to feel like a little bit of a letdown and i kind of feel that way about the ending leading into mickey's fight the fight was shot so beautifully because yes uh, if there's one thing that Guy Ritchie loves, it's underground boxing with slow motion. Because in the first Sherlock, he had that great scene with Robert yes. Downey Jr. Guy Ritchie loves that. But it just, it was almost impossible to keep the insane energy of the chase going. So I feel like there's a mild letdown there. Conspicuous timing. And I don't mean the crossing of the different paths during the chase. I mean that Mickey knew exactly when his boys were going to make the move at the campsite and connected that in the fight somehow and exactly when Bricktop was going to come out. And just that is a case of conspicuous timing for me that I'm just like, eh, but you know, 
again, this is this is a, a mild complaint that I have. I think my my biggest complaint is that with a hyperkinetic style like Guy Ritchie uses in this movie and in all of his movies, it can sometimes become self-indulgent, right? Sometimes that twirling camera is just twirling rather than twirling productively. I feel like where they got to that point in this movie was the pikey wake. The pikey wake for me was self-indulgent. Yes. And Maybe it's just because the scene of Mickey watching the camper burn while his boys try to hold him back with Angel going underneath, Massive Attacks Angel. Maybe it's just because that was so effective that the Pikey Wake feels... um, It feels... Self-indulgent is is the best way. I feel like it, it was insincere. He's my only boy, and he's a good boy. <laughs> I loved her, too. I loved Mickey's mom. Yeah. She, she was yeah. adorable. She was wonderful. I loved her. I hope she's living, living a peaceful life, whoever that actor yeah. is. But that is the the long and short of what I thought really worked best and the few things that I thought didn't work. All right. All good stuff. Uh, I'm I'm with you on so many of those things that you said uh, that you were you know really worked well for you, uh, Eric. What do you have that might be different from anything BJ uh, mentioned? So I liked some of the. I mean, obviously, like this is almost like an anthology series. I think that that device in terms of storytelling is really cool, especially when they allow it to collide dramatically and organically into this huge like train wreck and that's really part of like what is so cool about like the plot twist in this film for the most part like because it's it's a heist movie sort of rob described it as a criminal comedy which i don't know if that term was ever used before snatch came out um but i i think that's the absolute best description of it but you're talking about a handful of different character sets who are interacting with themselves and then all of a sudden with like one other character set and then boom, they've meshed and melded together. Um, I think it's really cool. The hair coursing um, with, you know, I bet, I bet the rabbit gets fornicated, uh, as Tommy says. Proper fornication. Yes, proper fornicate. So they show that, and they also have like a certain uh, jump cut with from like dogs chasing down a hare to underground London thugs chasing down uh, people who robbed a bookies. And I think there's some foreshadowing there that's really cool. That it's like, hey, we're gonna combine all these people. It's almost like a soap opera, right? Like where there's just so many different characters and situations, but they somehow all interact together and it's meaningful in a way. Um, but I, the the editing is extremely good. Um, I'm good. BJ brought that up a couple of times, but like the fight scenes work so well. They they cut these really really well with how they laid the track uh, and the Foley artists, you know, they do great too. Um, but the, just the soundtrack and, and then I'm biased, obviously that's the music guy, but all of that 
the the almost like the Rube Goldberg moments when Boris escapes. BJ mentioned like when he kind of gets out of the trunk. Like there's so many different things that are happening. Like it, uh, Tommy's throwing the milk out the window and it's causing somebody's windshield to get covered. And all of a sudden, Rosebud has a sword in his chest. Um, you know, but it, it, there's like some silly nonsense that happens, but it never ever feels like it's too much. Like the mm. scene in the bookies. It's like cartoonish almost how terrible they are at being criminals. It's almost cartoonish, but it doesn't ever, for me, cross the line where it's like the suspension of disbelief is, is violated. It's not there. I think it's, uh, I think it gets they, a little they, close though. Like at times do, you're just like, how are these guys career criminals? Most of these guys <laughs> suck at crime. Yes, they do. And they are so freaking close to that line where it's just like, I don't believe this anymore. It's right there. Uh, I think that that actually is some expertise, though, in, in filmmaking. Well, um, you know you know what it is? You know what it is? There's the scene where Bad Boy Lincoln comes in, right? He's in a the Bad Boy Yardie, which yeah. I had to Google, by the way. That means that he's pretty much a super thug criminal murderer. But go ahead. Yeah. And he comes in, and he's trying to sell the moissanite. And... <laughs> He says, and Saul says to him, you stick to being a gang star, leave this game to Vince. So Saul and Vince are brilliant as jewelry guys, fences, pawn guys, but then they try to go off-road. They get out of their lane. Yeah. They try to be active criminals instead of passive criminals. That's their problem. they, 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 They try to do what they discouraged Lincoln from doing, Uh huh. Right. And the mm. results for them are disastrous. By the way, that the whole bookie's robbery is—it's mm. almost scene perfection because you can't get like if you were to watch that scene from beginning to end and you're honest with yourself, I don't think you can say that you had any expectations that weren't met or exceeded from that scene. <laughs> it's extremely well done. I, I love that scene. I, yes. I'll tell you what I love most. I think somebody mentioned already, but the absolute blase attitude of the woman that's working the bookies when yeah. Saul and Vincent try to rob the place. Oh, man. I love that them. character. She just, to, she just needed her moment. You know what I mean? Just, like, yeah, yeah. Just, when we she's get fantastic. Yeah, yeah, she's hardcore. Um, Eric, anything else um, before we uh, wrap this segment up? I don't have anything that I really didn't like, to be honest. I I mean, some of the stuff about... Oh, what is your favorite scene? Well, ultimately, my most favorite scene is really the last fight because it was cut so well. I think the... Again, the editing... This is like... I don't know that I've really ever talked about like the editing of a film until this one um, as far as our uh, podcast goes. But they did that really well. They made and it believable. You could mention All of the sound effects are really, really well done and well cut. Um, I think, but the last one, they ventured into uh, some strange spike club territory, which is not uh, completely out of the realm of believability in terms of Mickey being Tyler Durden, and, you know, same guy. Um, it's it's just, it, 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 it worked really well when he gets just uppercutted and he's just floating parallel to the canvas. And then all of a sudden he splashes into water. And it's it's just it's cut well. They they put some really snappy uh, audio with it in terms of like the the foley artists hit uh, hitting like that meaty fist to, to 
body sound. The one that I um, loved there, the one that great. I loved, the one that I loved, Eric, was the one that sounded like a high tension wire snapping, just ripping apart. Yeah, I know yeah. exactly what we're talking about. And that was like, I think it was like the final uppercut before Brad Pitt went. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't know, but they, they did degrees it, to the ground. That was they really did it cool. once or twice, and it sounded like an airplane cable snapping, and yeah, it was like. It sounds like it's it's very serious in terms of the audio and what they're trying to convey in the fight scenes. It's really, really great. So the final fight scene, I think probably if I had to pick one most favorite scene, that would be it. So I'm surprised we haven't talked about this yet. Um, Brad Pitt's characterization for Mickey the Pikey is absolutely incredible. I... I think it's some of his best work, but it rarely gets brought up as such. Like when you talk about Brad Pitt's career and you talk about some of his best work, almost nobody is going to talk about Mickey, but I feel like, Oh my God. Um, he just absolutely nails it. I mean, just even be able to consistently pull off that dialect alone yeah. is a challenge. How do you sell mm-hmm. that? And yeah. you're sitting here trying to portray like the American equivalent of like a trailer trash english irish mix mm-hmm. he has he has no the experience. dialect is tough like brad pitt is a, a he could teach a master class if he wanted to and i don't know that enough people appreciate it because i think ultimately they're really salty about the fact that he has a high jawline he's very attractive and he's cut unreasonably well what and i'm what i'm jealous but i also always... know that he's a great actor what I've always said about Brad Pitt is that he's a character actor trapped in a leading man's body mm. because he plays these That's goofy characters well, like Mickey. He plays, remember his character from 12 monkeys where he was like totally nuts. Insane, he was right? brilliant, brilliant doing that. Ocean's you know? 11, I think is another great example of what you just said. Wait, Cause he was he always eating in those movies. Like he's a character actor trapped in a leading man's body. Huh. I, that's one of the most profound things I've heard in a while. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to have to think about that for a little bit. Um, so we've talked about uh, so some other things that work. Uh, we've talked about cinematography a little bit. The fight at the campsite, I think the cinematography is just absolutely incredible. The use of slow motion, rem- mm. the choice to remove the background audio. It's just chef's kiss. Great filmmaking. There's so much great interaction between uh vincent saul and tyrone like yep. when tyrone's arguing with them about not eating in the car he's just like don't get it on my seats tyrone this Stop is a stolen car on my seats <laughs> yeah oh my god and then he backs up and he hits the van it was a funny angle and he's talking about how that's what happens when you back up things come yeah. up from behind you almost every scene with the three of them is is just incredible there's even like little subtle touches like the blinking fluorescent light that you see up above when turkish and tommy go to speak to bricktop there's just there's so many layers of grime and filth that get added to this seedy underworld where literally every character is some kind of scumbag mm-hmm. um I love when the three groups are driving and they cross paths unintentionally. It's really good planning in the screenwriting phase on how something that's sort of loosely connected up to this point can come together, but still have it make sense. It's like a Rube Goldberg, um, isn't it? Yeah, it kind of is almost because they have the, uh, the blank goes off in the car, which kind of distracts them. And then yeah. the, you mentioned the, the milk, milk and then everything the just, 
Yeah, and, and it just turns Boris into Boris getting hit. Is out of the <clears throat> trunk, and Rosebud has a sword in his chest. And yeah. <laughs> Boris, Boris doing his little dance to try and find the yeah, with a, with a Oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a there's a very frantic feel of the camera movement and the editing of Mickey's mom's funeral. Uh, you know, BJ, I, I hear what you're saying about how that's maybe a little bit. I really thought the technical filmmaking there was really pretty good. Oh yeah. Um, I I was yeah. really into I that because cool. I, I, I think the emotion is different there, right? Like you can convey emotion yeah. with cinematography, mm-hmm. and I think that that was part of yeah. that. I can't hate on the technical decisions, the technical know-how to put that scene together. It just felt it felt like he went a little too far with his I will use my camera to force you to feel things. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a far different scene than anything else in the film. That was mm-hmm. by itself a very unique <clears throat> Yeah. It's a little it's a little incongruous. Yeah. Um, I love the boxing match. And I'll tell you what I love about it. I Which think one? I love that. Which one? The, the final oh, yeah, match. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah the final match. fantastic. One. That dude, by um, the way, is yeah. real thick. Like, oh, dude. yeah. I mean, they picked the perfect <laughs> looking guy for that. I mean, just, just, a, yeah. meaty, just, just a, a meaty guy. Broad-shouldered <laughs> MF who probably can never find clothes. That... <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Really that, that guy does not yeah. wear a suit to yeah. work yeah. at all. Um straps the size of other people's thighs <laughs> yeah um what i what i think i love most is just how it's made to appear that mickey is going along with the fix up until he doesn't um, yeah, how many times do you really think can... that you know what's going on here and you don't <sighs> yeah couple um, right like, i i just love that whole thing his, well so, his first fight with gorgeous george the first time i saw that movie I never once expected him to just one hit KO Gorgeous George. He yeah. just dropped them like a yep. sack of hammers went right yeah. down, right into right into Golden Brown. Yeah. Brilliant, which is Brilliant. by the way so so great. That one hit wallop, the one hit quit, and then that crazy psychedelic harpsichord sound in Golden Brown, and it's just like okay, <laughs> yeah, some great choices there overall. Uh, if I had to pick a favorite scene, um, it it really is the scene in the pub with Bullet Tooth Tony, yeah. Saul, Vincent, and Tyrone. It's so hard. To um, do that. Every time I've watched this movie, I've been looking forward to rewatching that scene probably the most of anything. And and I've seen this movie. You know, BJ, you and I have watched this movie probably dozens mm-hmm. of times just together. Uh, let alone right. how many times I've seen it beyond that. Uh, and every time, you know, it still lands for me. It's still something I can't wait for it to happen. I love the way that Richie handles the camera and the editing, particularly on the replica and Desert Eagle point five oh bit. I just because well, there's yep. there's an audio so that good. goes with it, right? Like he yep. uses he uses both film senses, audio and visual. Yeah. Very, very well. It's it's unique, it's masterful. And Honestly, 100% honestly, if I were holding a gun that said replica on the side and I were staring down the barrel of a gun that said Desert Eagle .50 on the side, I would probably say that is my favorite scene as well. So as far as things that that don't work, I, I've got nothing, guys. I got to be honest. I've, I've loved this movie for so long. Um, yeah. You know, certainly we talked about this with Star Wars. Nostalgia is kind of a fickle bitch you know like it's oh, it's hard she will influence <laughs> and put her thumb on the scale like so hard 
I really don't have anything about this that I'm like, yeah, I don't enjoy that about this. Movie. I don't either. So stop feeling bad about yourself. Yeah. If I, I had I to pick a least favorite a scene, thing I don't like. Yeah. If I had to pick a least favorite scene just for the sake of picking one, I would say it's maybe when Mickey's mom has her camper burned down. And that's really, and it's, and it's not because it's not well done. The scene is, is actually very well executed. And I mean that both from an on-screen and behind the camera perspective. I, I think that Brad Pitt's work and Guy Ritchie's work in oh, that scene are so incredible and well done. Believable with oh my goodness. Yeah. Buddies, right. Like he's, he's got, his eyes are welling up. And then they're playing Angel by Massive Attack, which, by the way, yeah. is like one of the Hall of Fame best songs on the planet. Yeah. And the use of it in that moment, like freaking phenomenal. It's really well done. And I think it's maybe just more that it's hard to watch because it is so well done. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it's just like, believable. you know, just the horror there's, of that. There's, yeah. you're, you're definitely onto something there when, when you're talking about like, especially horror movies or anything with like dramatic violence and, and traumatic things. The realer it is, the harder it is to watch. Yeah. So uh, we're going to move on to our next segment. Uh, this is a segment you guys didn't know was coming because I'm going to have uh, BJ. We're going to start with you. We're going to call, we call this segment body count. Uh, BJ, Ooh. I would like you to guess. I'm going to give you over under and you have to tell me if the body count in this movie is over or under 30. Over. Eric, is it over or under 30? I'm saying under. Uh, Eric, you would be correct. The actual body count in this movie is 26. Ooh, uh, I was okay. going to guess it was in the teens. Um, okay. Well, no, because there's all of all of Bricktop's guys at the end. Yeah, yeah, that's they, where I was inflating. Like, there's like less than a dozen in a van. And then they, they kill Liam with a, you know, he's a ruthless C-word. Mm-hmm. With a bag over the face early on. Uh, but there's not a ton of killing. It it does seem like when I tell you that it's 26, it does feel like it's more than that, though, because you kind of associate everything that happens like in this movie. You just think it's It's like a whole criminal enterprise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's not really like what gets focused on the whole thing. This is actually like a London street gang. So uh, our next segment is called F Bombathon. And it's a segment we've done pretty regularly. My most Uh, favorite. (laughs) If this is over for F bombs, just give me the over. (laughs) I don't. You could, so, you could, not, you could uh, say the uh, the over under is two point three million, and I would stick the over. Shockingly, yeah. Uh, All right, uh, Eric, I'm going to have you go first this time. Uh, I'm not going to give you an over under. I just want you to no, guess. I looked it up, so I'm just going to. Oh, you looked it up. Right. All right, so then, uh, BJ, uh, take a take a guess. What do you think it is? All right, total for the film, not per minute, because I have total for the numbers. total for the film. Yes, a hundred and eight, hundred and eighteen. That's Ooh. extremely good. That's very For close. For a hundred and three minute runtime, go ahead, Rob. Uh, one hundred and fifty nine was the number I found. Wow, that's, that's uh, good for one point five six f bombs per minute. <laughs> um, by the way, so like total f bombs from you know the runtime is is one hundred and thirty seven on uh, according to Wikipedia. Um, but if you're talking about the frequency. The hertz, the f bomb hertz. Uh, <laughs> it actually, it moves up a couple dozen slots. It's ranked 114 at 1.56 per minute, uh, wow. which is impressive because that's like my vernacular there. One one and a half f bombs per minute. That is that is a, an impressive quantity of f bombery. It is, yeah. 
So uh, we've got a new segment we're doing for this episode, and we're going to call this Criminal Capability. This movie is full of bad guys. Um, and every single person. <laughs> every single character, for the most part, if not all of them. And um, some of them are good at their jobs, and some of them are really bad at their jobs. Uh, BJ, I'd like you to go first. Uh, who do you believe are the three most capable criminals, the best okay. at being bad? Are we counting Bricktop? Because we're coming to him later in yes. Villainy Index. <laughs> yes. Yes. All okay. Of all, everybody, I think it's all right. The whole, so, the whole ensemble. See, I've got to. I'm actually, I'm actually not sure about including Bricktop because in the in the existing circumstances of the film, he is this major crime lord. So we know that he is capable, but the movie really is the course of his undoing. You know, so I don't know exactly how he rates criminally capable there. You know, it's 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 the story of him getting got. That is a tough uh, you know? decision to make. Do you consider his ability prior to his downfall? Yeah. So, given that in mind, I feel like our a number one capable guy is Mister Crit Hit Intimidation Check Bullet Tooth Tony. Oh, all right. Because in the course of the movie, we see him in flashback gets shot six times and not even yeah. care. Yep. We see him walk to Madonna. Yeah. We, oh, I love this trick. <laughs> we see him womp on just about everybody. Uh, we see him capably navigate, you know, because he's, he's not just the muscle. He's hunting down the MacGuffin. You know, he's yeah. making connections. Yeah. He's, he's he's the the bloodhound. You know, he's really he really he's is. Hunting. He's hunting. He, really. he brings a lot to the table. I was conflicted on whether or not Boris the Blade goes in here because Boris the Blade has some really strong moments. He does, but he makes the terrible decision of hiring Vinny and Saul <gasps> to go outside of their lane. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if You're I can right. really give him no, really... criminal capability. I got I got two to finish off criminal capability here. One of them is gonna cause some maybe some disagreement, and one of them is gonna be I think you guys will fully agree with. Which should I go with first? Uh, surprise. Whatever me. you like. Yeah. Okay, I'll go with agree with. Maybe the most capable criminal in all of this movie is the lady bookie. <laughs> Listen, ain't nothing more hard than a chick with shaved at a number one razor length. I mean, hair. you know, she's got she's got a howitzer pointed in her face. Saul has like a freaking combat shotgun <laughs> yeah. pointed in her face. It's like a Spas Twelve. It really is. Like it's, it's yeah. No joke. And and she just is cool as a cucumber the whole go. All bets are off. She is just cool as a cucumber the whole time. The second that Saul drops his guard, she yoinks his cannon, lets one off at him for good measure, and then locks the building down. Yoink, here's a hot one for you. Now I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs> I almost honestly like let's go ahead and just fanfic uh retcon this. She was personally interviewed and trained by Bricktop. 
Yeah, she was. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say that she Lady might even Bookie, be his niece. La, no, Lady Bookie. Lady Bookie was the real mastermind. Lady, Lady oh, Bookie, oh. Bricktop. As soon as Bricktop would get off camera, he would call up Lady Bookie for instructions on what right. to do next. Wow, that's bold. That's yeah. my that's my head I like cannon it. here. I like it. That's it. my head hard, cannon. Hard to argue with. All right, know. so uh, is, what's what's the one that you think we might disagree on? Tyrone. Ooh, we are going to disagree on that. <laughs> Wait, you're putting him in your top three as good? Yeah. Oh, you no, know we're why? Fighting. We're fighting. Okay, go ahead. Give me your. No, no, no. Oh, it's one wait. moment. It's one moment, you guys. When he opens After, the door? <laughs> well, that's. <laughs> No, honestly, okay, two moments. After the disaster at the bookies, they're trying to get away. He backs up and hits Frankie four fingers. And it's like, what are you doing, Tyrone? It's a man with four fingers and a briefcase. briefcase. I agree yes. with you. I love your logic. All right. That is, so. that is, why, that is why Tyrone, despite being – and also, he is a silly fat bastard, right? <laughs> but he survives this movie where hardcore dudes like boris the bullet dodger and bullet tooth tony do not Mm. those hard those hard sobs do not survive this movie he was in a body bag at one point during the movie and he still is alive at the end Mm -hmm. good job good job by you all right, so I, I like your list. It made me think a little bit. Eric, who are your three most capable criminals? I have number one, Bricktop. He is the definition of nemesis, and then he further defines that in one of the best monologues in film history. Uh, Boris the Blade is number two because, come on, man. Listen, like he, he's Boris the Bullet Dodger. You know, like, <laughs> can't be killed. Um, so then I have uh, Bullet Tooth Tony as number three because, like, I mean, he's freaking Bullet Tooth Tony. He got shot how many times by that guy? And then he just pulls out a sword. He got shot <laughs> six, six times in one sitting. In one sitting. Yeah. yeah that was the Abby, cousin Abby. So, like, that makes him automatically in the realm of discussion. All right. So, uh, I'll go ahead and do my top three. BJ, it's a lot of what I've got kind of is going to disagree with a little bit. Eric, I've almost got the same list as you. So, at number three, I've got Boris the Bullet Dodger. I've got Bullet Tooth Tony at number two. I think he just gets a little unlucky. Um, the reason he yeah, he doesn't he doesn't feature higher on my list is that um, you know he did he couldn't recognize that that cousin Abby was was Dangerous. a liability in that moment. <laughs> he, he he couldn't realize that that's not somebody that you let have. If you Mr. died before the end well, of the movie, you can't be number one for me in terms. Of he life. was he was disarmed. Bullet Tooth Tony was disarmed by the one thing that makes him uncomfortable. Look inside the dog. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's why that. he didn't have control of Cousin Abby at that moment. That's a, that's a bit heavy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got Bricktop at number one. Now, BJ, I absolutely understand where you come from, that this movie is kind of the story of his undoing. But there's really not a lot of career criminals that get to retire. Like, if you look at yeah. the, the the pirates that were around during the Golden Age, um not not many of them if any actually retired they all died like in it and that's and that's kind of the case with with people who just exist in this world it's not a world that you really get to just you know 
retire from, I guess, from, to read yeah, that word. There's, there's no you golden all, watch waiting. No, no, they all watch. die at some point. And I just think that uh, that Bricktop was, was pretty right. good. It seemed like he had his hands in everything. So let me ask you this, because this is something I'm very serious about. What do you think about Bricktop's status? Because I had him in number one. You had him at number one. BJ, what did yeah. you have Bricktop at? I didn't put in Bricktop. I had to disqualify okay. him because... Well, he's a little bit too obvious, right? Yeah. Okay, so in the film, you're talking about there's two different occasions where he's approached by people who are obviously wagering on the outcome of a bare knuckle boxing Yeah, match. I, I know exactly where you're going with this, and I so had considered that too. Almost seems like he's not the top dog, right? Like that guy kind of half threatens him, and he doesn't stab him like he does with the. Other I, guys. Well, no, I I got the impression those guys were Brick Top's peers, not his superiors. Right, he was mm. embarrassed people, in right? front of his peers. Yeah, right. and and that could be something that's sort of tra- uh, lost in translation, like uh, it, cultural. Mm-hmm. differences in terms of like in america yeah. street gangs there's no such thing as equals even though like objectively you could say like these people are equal in their own minds there is no such thing they are well, either it, alpha it's, or they're dead it's the respect it's the respect of the bosses you know you yes. got to go back it's in the american mafioso thing right yeah you got to go back to the american mafioso tradition america. to see the respect of the bosses yes. like because brick untouchables but like that dude really does confront him. Like, you know, I, I wasn't mm-hmm. effing happy with blah, 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 or he better go down. Like they're, they're kind of half threatening this dude. And he's supposed to be the scariest guy on the film, right? Like Brick yeah, Top's but, supposed to be the guy that makes you have nightmares. That is the some risk. guy who's not afraid of him clearly saying you better be right this time. It doesn't say or else, but it is implied. Yeah, that's the respect of bosses because he had this fight rigged. He offered that information to fellow bosses as a token of respect. Right. And then he couldn't follow through. BJ, go and lead us off. Who are the least capable criminals that you think uh, are in this film? I'm going to say Vince, Saul, and Vince again. <laughs> You're exactly right. You're exactly right. Go ahead. Vince, Vince gets the gold and the bronze because he seems to be slightly more inept than Saul. Puts the diamond down his pants and then he just yeah. immediately yeah. admits to it. It's such a yeah. hard, hard to argue with that. Uh, Eric, who are your Vince? least capable criminals? Uh, well, so I have Tyrone because. Uh, well, you know, he's a getaway driver. What the f can he get away from? And also, he can't drive. He can't park. You know, so Tyrone's almost useless. Vincent, of course, he's in there. He's number two. And then, honestly, I have as my least effective criminal Tommy the Tit. I gotta heartily disagree. Do you know why? Well, he did. Have he has one moment. He's pretty effective. Yes. Tommy stares down five he guys does. with bats and pipes with a gun he knows does not fire. <laughs> that does – listen, I will give him respect for that without question. <clears throat> but so the reason I to... put him lower I, it's just because he didn't have a choice. That was the only move that was available on the board. And I don't think that Tommy is a capable criminal without Turkish being there. I'm kind of 
I'm kind of in Eric's camp on that. I, I had definitely considered what you said um, about how, you know, he, he did stand up to those guys. Um, so I've got him actually, he appears on my list at number three. Uh, yeah. He makes mistake after mistake after mistake in this movie. It really seems like Turkish just kind of keeps him around. Maybe they're childhood friends or something like that is really kind of what it feels He's like. like to my me. brother. I mean, he does describe it as like, you know, he, he keeps him out of as much trouble as he gets him into. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't really he seem to actually him. do anything right at any point with that one exception, but oh, um, that really I've, is his only play. You know, I've that gotta, is the I've only gotta, play. I've got to interject one more thing from the yeah. list of things that I loved but didn't mention. Brick Top's completely unexplained hatred of Tommy. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. He treats him like Walter does uh, in, uh, in Big Lebowski. He treats him like Donnie. Eric, it's funny you mentioned that because I actually sort of got that same vibe. I wrote that down. I literally wrote it down. Yeah. So So least effective, (laughs) least capable criminals. I've got Tommy. Uh, Number two, I've got Frankie Four Fingers. Um, He's got way too many vices. He does manage to pull off the diamond heist. but it's Really big heist, heist, by the way. It's a good heist. The heist is chef's kiss. Yep. Yes. Frank, you got to be able to execute it all the way to getting the diamond to a fence. Otherwise, you're not a, a super effective criminal. Yeah. yeah. And he had too many himself. distractions. You really can't. Yes. Yeah. You're 100 um, right. So I don't think he's. By you know, the way, let's capable. talk about just very briefly. Benicio del Toro might have been the biggest A-list actor in this entire script at the year 2000, and he barely featured. Is Brad Pitt still for me? But Benicio's yeah. number two. I think so too. Yeah. I think Benicio gets top hilling on this, honestly. It's no, awesome. Brad Pitt was bigger. Brad Pitt's bigger star. Brad Pitt Much was bigger, bigger at that point. Mm, I don't know. I'm going to agree to disagree. So I was got disappointed my... in the amount of time that Benicio. Yes, was I will back that. that. I wanted more Frankie Four Fingers yes. because. Frankie Effing Four Fingers. He's my friend. His, his persona was so freaking brilliant because he had this very, you know, not. He's very nonchalant about everything, right? Yeah, not this not ostentatious accent uh-huh. that Benicio put on. And he just was this completely out of control, frenetic, seemingly kind of bisexual. But also very degenerate gambler. Yeah. Um, so I've got Tommy three, Frankie four fingers two. I have Tyrone as my least capable criminal. It it seems yeah. like he's along because I can't argue with that. he's, he's the only guy they know that's willing to go along with them because they suck at crime so bad that they don't know good <laughs> yeah. criminals. So they yeah. only get Tyrone. Um, <laughs> well, also, that's... by the way, he snitches. Okay. Like that's, like Oh yeah, absolutely. Number one in the criminal world. You don't freaking snitch. He dimes no. them out so fast. All I had to do was put him in a body bag. Yeah. Poor guy. Yep. So uh, <laughs> that's my list for criminal capability. Um, we're going to move next into some behind the scenes details. And I've just got a couple of different things that I found interesting about this movie as I was researching it. So we, we've previously discussed that Solomon Vincent Tyrone, they're pretty terrible at crime overall. Guy Ritchie actually based the screw ups in this movie on TV shows that ran late at night covering true crime that went wrong. That was the basis for it. It was like real world stuff. Um, They actually had to use a stand in for bullet tooth Tony for the scene where he knocks on the window of Vincent and Saul's car because Vinnie Jones was in jail for getting into a fight the night before, which is probably the most bullet tooth Tony thing imaginable. Well, 
Vinnie Jones was known as a hard man of football. He actually played professional soccer, and he was pretty aggressive and physical. So that's extreme. This whole role was right up his alley. Let's talk about Lenny James, who I really loved in the Walking Dead series when I was yeah, really into that show. Really hard Lenny is James is fantastic. Of, like, I really... Hall of Fame actors of the world. Yeah, Lenny James is great overall. Um, so he plays the character of Saul. He actually took two near misses to his minerals during shooting with one of the dogs that was used biting him in the crotch. <laughs> it really and then he did. also had the shotgun. Yeah, the shotgun actually hit him in the same place during the robbery of the bookie. Uh, the take <laughs> where the shotgun hit him. Uh, actually was used in the final cut of the movie. So what you can go back and watch that if you want it. What are you moaning about? Didn't even touch you. He's the one that said that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Brad Pitt, he actually contacted Guy Ritchie to ask for a part in this next movie. And Ritchie cast him in the film, even though he didn't have a role available. He then rewrote the movie to include Mickey uh, specifically for Pitt, which I think is pretty, oh, pretty wild oh, to think about. I mean, if Brad Pitt wants to be in your movie, like you don't you say rewrite no, your movie, you know, <laughs> you rewrite your movie. Yeah, I, I kind of love the little Easter egg. I think a lot of people know this, but at the time this was made, Madonna and Guy Ritchie were at least dating, if not right, married. So the, uh, the time they used Lucky Star yeah. was a, a was, was a nice Easter egg. I no, thought it was gratuitous. He yeah, just wanted to get her I thought it was funny. Cash. Oh, I love this track. It did work yeah. though. Like in terms of the film, like it, the the absurdity of it, as far as Paul Tutoni loving a Madonna song. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, Especially that yeah. one. Because it's because Bullet Tooth Tony is not a normal person. Yeah, he's a sociopath. <laughs> it's just like almost everybody else is in the movie. Being, being, being shot six times to a track Tony. should probably send you into an absolute triggered state anytime you later hear that track. But instead, he remarks how much he loves it while he is dragging a man whose head is in his car window <laughs> alongside the and car. He calls him a penars, which I think is yeah. hilarious. <clears throat> so the okay. final one I've got for you, um, Mickey's first boxing match, um, the way that it's shown is based on a real fight that happened between a guy named Lenny McLean and Mad Gypsy Bradshaw. Uh, McLean actually worked with Richie on Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. So I think it's just kind of funny. Um, oh, that's cool. That, uh, I didn't know that out. at all. Yeah. Yeah. So another fun segment that we do here regularly that uh, a lot of people enjoy is called Alternate Castings. And I wasn't able to find much on this. And everything I found uh, regarding alternate castings um, was all around Bricktop. Uh, the original actor, I don't know if you guys know this, the original actor that the role of Bricktop was offered to was none other than Sean Connery. Yeah. What? I don't yeah. know. I've loved this movie since it came out. Since 23 uh, I have also loved this movie since it came out. And this is the, when I was doing research for this, was the first time I'd ever actually heard I was, that. I was today years old. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's another actor by the name of Bradley Walsh that was cast as Bricktop but fired before production got underway. Uh, Guy Ritchie found out he used to host Wheel of Fortune and didn't think that image worked for his film. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, there's another actor by the name of Dave Courtney, whose work I'm not really overly familiar with. I think he's been in mostly British TV and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, British films that uh, was well, also kind of discussed for the role of Bricktop. Yeah, Alan Alan Ford though, who did play Bricktop, was one Fantastic. of Ritchie's guys. He was in he was in Lockstock and. Uh, uh, 
uh, uh, just he was a uh, sort of a regular on a whole bunch of different well, he's DVC an extremely stuff. convincing nemesis and i hate to keep using that word because yeah. it's like so cliche with film but what word is better it fits nemesis? it fits so we're going to move on to our next segment called notable and quotable now here on rob's reviews one of the reasons we choose the movies that we choose is they've just been all-time classics and there's a lot of things that make a movie an all-time classic one of those things for sure is you got to have all-time great lines, great quotable lines. Um, now, this is a comedy, and not only is it a comedy, but it is a very witty comedy. Nearly every line of dialogue is a joke and is funny and is memorable. So we're going to limit ourselves to three uh, to make this not just three guys sitting in their basement yelling quotes at each other. <laughs> So um, I know this had to have been one of the hardest things to do to prep for this show is to try to limit yourself to three. So uh, BJ, I'd love for you to go first. Um, give us your three favorite lines. Well, one of the one of the judges for me, and I'm I'm gonna stay away from some of the obvious ones. I'll leave you know Z Germans for you guys. But um, one of the ways that I evaluate how effective dialogue is in a movie is if I find it working its way into my standard rotation of expressions. And I don't just mean as inside jokes, you know, and one of them for me that did that was when Turkish in his monologue described Mickey as harder than a coffin nail he was he was a bare knuckle boxing champion which makes him harder than a coffin nail and for the last 23 years i have used that as a descriptor for <laughs> anyone who i consider to be exceptionally hard tough MF. harder harder than a coffin nail so i've got to go with that like one that. for one of mine and another one that I, I went with, there are so many corny or hammy or bad title drops, right? You know, and we have a title, you know, just in, in the, the course of the dialogue. And the title drop in this one was practically a throwaway, but it jumped out at you if you know just and it's when they've got the dog and the dog is you know being very aggressively bitey don't snatch and yeah vincent says don't snatch and i'm just like yeah yeah i just i had to give it up to that one <laughs> well it's where the name comes from right yes because it is an interesting and organic seeming title drop that's the thing about title drops. They usually seem so very inorganic, but that one was just there. Yeah, they're kind of obvious, right? Like it's, uh, yeah. it's a family guy spoof of it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, boy, my third, I am going to go with, I'm going to go with Frankie Four Fingers leaning in to Doug the Head and mm. saying, Booby, I probably know a lot. You don't. <laughs> uh, all great choices. So, uh, Eric, uh, do you have ones that are different from BJ's? Yeah, I do, actually. I, and I, I tried to stay in the same vein that uh, BJ did in terms of less obvious ones. 
because these are and, and not less obvious like i was deliberately picking weird innocuous things these really authentically hit me right in the feels in terms of laughing or anger or seriousness for the first one i wrote and they're mostly bullet tooth tony or boris because let's be honest they kind of steal the show um when they're talking about uh pulling out you know how are they going to kill boris uh, rosebud pulls out he's like i got a blade he pulls out this really enormous like butcher knife <laughs> and, and tony says uh, you know, it's it's like the um, Paul Hogan uh, crocodile Dundee. That's not a knife. You know, he, he says, wipe the butter off and put it away. <laughs> yeah. like, There's a purple blade down there. huge chef's knife, a butter knife, and he has a sword. He's got okay, a freaking so like, scimitar. Wipe the butter off and put it away is probably the one of the most like dismissive and insulting things you could ever say to a person. And at the same time, it's also like kind of polite. And I think that that's one of the things I love the most about British people. <laughs> um, the next one I have is hilarious. Again, this is just a small interaction. But like when Boris shows up at the pawn shop and he's talking to Saul, <laughs> the dog just runs out and he says, Don't worry about the dog, Boris. <laughs> Boris just kind of shrugs and says, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. He couldn't give one fifth of a fornication. <laughs> okay. And then uh, with Bullet to Tony, after the Desert Eagle 0.50 scene, he says, Abby, pull your socks up, which, by the way, is a great quote. And he just starts launching freaking half inch rounds into the hallway <laughs> and then he goes in there and boris won't die and then he says don't take the piss boris <laughs> like, he's, like he's super disappointed in boris you know what i mean like he's just he's like lecturing him while he's executing him he has really to funny take, and finally he has to take a moment to line up a head yeah, like he really does like square up you know <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like after he's launched 0.50 rounds into this guy's body, he decides to square up with two hands and be perpendicular to his target and, and launches these howitzer rounds. And he says, Don't take the piss, Bart. He has to. I mean, the guy has yeah. taken like six or seven rounds at that point, and he's still not and dead. Honestly, like, I love. Uh, English colloquialisms and like the you know royalman slang. I love all of that. And I yeah, think it's an American uh, thing that we just instantly appreciate it um, because it's so different. But also at the same time, the same is like we. It's all the same words, but like the meanings are mm -hmm. wildly different. And well, I, I find that very. Rob, Rob, we have covered uh, this sort of philosophical topic at length where any profanity is just funnier if it's British. Yeah, you have a, oh, like 100%. Accent, it automatically adds a couple points yeah. to the funniness factor. It, it, it always makes it funnier every time. Just um, any profanity. What do you got, Rob? Exactly. What do you got? So I, I wrote down like 30. <laughs> I didn't write that many down. Uh, just in case That's I, true. you know, you guys picked the same ones <laughs> I did. So there's one that I love. I love it every time. I look forward to it every time. It's when uh, Turkish has to call Bricktop to explain the fight is off. He said, we've lost gorgeous George. Bricktop. <laughs> Bricktop responds back. 
where'd you lose him? It's not like he's a set of car keys. It's not like he's in freaking spicuous. Yep. Um, that's gorgeous. And, and having the profanity as as a packet and, of effing peanuts. Yeah. Yes. Having the profanity <laughs> as its own syllable with inside of a word. Um, I, I just I just love the use of it there. It's great. Um, it's so good. Very early into the movie, uh, Turkish looks over to the, some other guy that works for him and says, how's it coming with those sausages? He says, two minutes, Turkish. Charlie. And then he asks him again. And he says, it was two minutes, five minutes ago. Uh, you know, BJ, you mentioned it, you know, having having lines that just work their way into your regular vernacular. Um, I, Eric, I'm pretty sure every single episode you and I have ever done at some point when we're trying to figure out the timing on it, um, that line has come up at some point. Uh, yeah, when, there's when a lot of gifts. How's oh, those sausages coming, Charlie? Back yeah, and forth. And, and honestly, this is probably one of the most quoted movies of my lifetime. Yeah, uh, between between the two that line us. alone gets quoted a ton. Yeah. Um, I, I just felt like that one resonated. Yeah, yeah it's great. Um, I I had trouble uh, lining up my third one out of out of what I've got left on the list. So I'm just going to go with when Bricktop walks in on Saul and Vincent and they're carrying Frankie Fourfinger's dead body and he says, <laughs> "Hope this is not a bad moment." <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. And an absolute contender for me on this one was I don't create or I don't I create the bodies I don't yeah, erase I don't the erase the bodies. That was yeah. a contender for me. Yeah. I, I also gave consideration to these are your last words, make them a prayer. Um so we were just speaking about Bricktop here. We're gonna move on to another reoccurring segment here on Rob's Reviews. We call this villainy index. <laughs> and <laughs> Villainy index is where we look at the villain or villains overall, the, the bad guys, the nemesis of the film, if you will. And we rank them on a scale of one to 10 with how effective and how good of a villain they are. And that's really, when you look at, again, your all time classic movies, you know, uh, we had BJ give us his star Wars rankings right from the very beginning. And what does star Wars have the best villains? And that's part of what makes iconic villains iconic. So, um, BJ, I'm going to go ahead and let you go first. So on a scale of one to 10 with 10 being Darth Vader and one being nuclear man from Superman for the quest for peace, where do you rank Bricktop? I put Bricktop at a solid 8.5. He loses some points because Bricktop is not Bricktop has some hubris, right? That undoes him. Yep. I can't give a full 10 to a villain that does not do any of their own fighting, so to speak. Ooh, okay. You know? I you've appreciate got to have, the scoring there. That's a good rubric. You've got to have some capacity to inflict pain yourself Physical to, score, to score the perfect 10. What, what I do absolutely love about Bricktop, the Grimace... The Bricktop Grimace is remarkable. The cruel precision of pig feeding. Mm. <laughs> what a what a monologue that is, too. He well he tells you yeah. you have to chop the body into six pieces and pile it all together. Did anybody six else start doing the math on that one? Pieces. 
how did yeah. you how did you do it? So you're talking about four limbs, a torso, and a head, right? Is anybody else differing there? I think that's yeah. probably it. But he is going for six pieces. So I have to figure four limbs, the head, you cut the torso in half somehow, right? Okay. But it is the precision of six pieces. You need 16 pigs to finish it in one sitting. They will go through a body that weighs 200 pounds in, I can't even, I can't remember how many minutes it was, but that means each pig is accounting for two pounds of uncooked flesh. Because <laughs> the way he says, <laughs> well done. That was extremely, that was a very good impression of uh, Alan Ford. Good job. Each, each pig will consume two pounds of uncooked flesh. It's like an extra C. That's like a German SCH. The cruel precision of pig feeding is, for me, Bricktop's apex villain moment. Mm. And it's followed right by Nemesis. Yeah. You know, that is a one-two punch that is just, that's Hall of Fame level villainy right there. Now, for me, I feel like I should explain 8.5 for me on this scale is not an 85. Like 8.5 is an A score. Oh, yeah. It's just to get get into the nines, the 9.5 or the 10, you've got to be practically flawless. Physically capable. Yeah. Yes. Well, because that's why Darth Vader is the 10. Yeah, that that is why Bricktop for me is a robust eight five. I like it. Yeah. All right, Eric, what is your villainy index for exactly eight point five? I have him. I wrote down. I swear to God, eight point five nemesis territory. He is in that. What he defines as nemesis. He the only thing that really, and I like BJ's point about him like not physically being capable maybe he is we don't know i mean he doesn't ever show it but like he does appear to be a senior citizen right like they they present him as a guy who's well, not necessarily in, physically capable of in the opening montage in the title card shots they do show him going to work a guy with, with looks a like a hammer yeah. on a guy who's splayed oh, no. out on a pool table i'm not saying that he's not willing or yeah. able to beat a guy's face in with a hammer okay but like he is not ever going to show up alone to anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, that does bring him down some. Like, you can't – it to me, in terms of villain, if you can't do it by yourself, then you're never going to be a 10, okay? So, like – but the fact that he has so much fear stricken into the local thug uh, level of, of the, the underground criminal element, that's a big boost to him. But at the same time, we're talking about what we said earlier. He had uh, these fights, like guys who were confronting him about like, oh, thanks for the tip, bricked up. You know, like he wasn't as scary to those guys as he was to Tyrone and Vincent and Solomon and Ben Lincoln, people who knew what he was about. But like uh, these guys who they were also like basically his uh, peers, you know, in terms of the criminal underworld in, in London. So I don't think that he was a 10 because if he was a 10, then, then those people would have never been saying what they said to him. Yeah. 
so I think that 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 is the thing that makes him come down a couple notches for me. Yeah. All right. So BJ's at a ten. Eric, or I'm sorry, BJ's at an eight and a half. Uh, Eric, you're at eight and a half. Um, Same. Yep. I wrote down eight and a half. <laughs> you're yeah, never gonna believe cool. it. All right. Um, we, we, I promise we didn't collaborate on this. Yeah. Um, achieved. Yeah. Uh, he is certainly intimidating. There is no doubt about it. You know, you talked about how the yardy that is with Saul and Vincent reacts when he goes, I know who you are. And he says it as though he has already, I do. Uh, like he's, there's almost like a tremble his bladder in his voice. Yeah. You know what he says? He's released I his do. bladder already at yep. that point, And it's, he's going to have to change his shorts when he goes home, if he makes it home, like that's what he believes. Um, people are genuinely terrified of this guy, you know, with the exception of those people that kind of confront him a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, we can, we can certainly, you know, dive into whether or not, you know, who those guys actually are, but overall, you know, he's a violent sociopath and he shows no remorse of any kind for any of his actions. And he does some very deplorable stuff throughout this whole film, his only downfall and BJ, I think you used the word hubris. And that's also a word that I had written down as well. You know, his, that's it really where his downfall comes in because he never stops to think that he isn't going to push someone too far. And and mm-hmm. I think he certainly underestimates his adversaries yeah, for it. sure. Yeah. He thinks he, that he's got everything like he's on top of all of it. Yeah. Because he, certainly, he has the most guys and they're all the dirtiest, grimiest, most willing to do terrible things, but he doesn't know Pikey's. Yeah, he underestimates the Pikes for sure. Oh yeah, and there's there's a little social commentary in that because Bricktop is a greedy man, whereas the Pikes are desperate men, mm-hmm. and desperate beats greedy. So, you know, the hubris for sure um, definitely underestimated his adversaries. He certainly has his hands in just about everything illegal you can think of. I mean, he's got dogfighting. He's got, you know, bookies. He's got underground boxing. He's got some interest in this diamond. It just feels like if it's illegal and it's it's in his neighborhood. He's got it. He's got his hands yep. in it. He's involved in it. He's got something to do with it. So, yeah, I would say 8.5 for me as well. And we have quorum on that. So. Uh, we're going to move on to our next segment. It's Eric's EPU Extended Playlist. And it's a segment we've had a lot of fun with uh, as we've done this show. I- iconic movies that matter, that really resonate with you, that hit, that just last and, and make you think about them and make you make it an all-time favorite. One of the things that also has to have is iconic music. And Eric, what do you have for us for the playlist? What is it called and what can listeners expect to find on it? Whew. All right, so this is um, the MGTTM that goes to the movies, uh, EPU, it's the podcast universe. Um, we call this Desert Eagle Point Five O, and that is the very phonetic spelling of you know it's not there's no numbers involved, there's no periods. It's literally the word point, the word five hyphen O H. Very eclectic. This is one of the most eclectic mixes that i've ever uh done there's i mean it goes from like reggae to tango to techno to funk and punk and rock and pop there's so much to it um we have a lot of good stuff this i I actually listened to it uh start to finish for the first time after i made it uh today it's fantastic if you 
have any interest whatsoever in uh, eclectic mixes. This is very, very good. There's uh, something for everybody, I think. I will concur on the dopeness of said playlist. Yeah, it's good stuff, as it always is. Uh, So listeners, make sure you check that out. It will be linked in the show notes. You can also search for it on Spotify using the uh, words that Eric gave earlier. Um, So really, when you're looking for something to listen to, you should definitely be listening to Matt Goes to the Movies. But sometimes you want music, and and I certainly understand that. Uh, And if you're looking for it, it's... Each of these playlists that Eric puts together just absolutely captures the vibe of the film. And it's hard not to listen to one and then immediately want to go watch that film because it just really gets you in the mood for it. So I really enjoy that uh, you put these together and I listen to pretty much all of them at one point or another. I'll find myself uh, really digging, uh, you know, one of the other ones. I've been listening to the one for uh, from Dust Till Dawn quite a bit because I, I just so really love that whole. Really great. Uh, I, I love that's it. a really good one. I've been in a blues kick lately, too. It's really good. Yeah. So we're going to move into our ranking system here on Rob's Review. So on the big show on Matt Goes to the Movies, we rank things out of five buckets of popcorn. Which, you know, for us to pick a movie here, Eric, we're pretty much always going to be assigning five bucks of popcorn. So we have to come up with a little bit different way to rank movies that are an all time classic for us. So so here's how it works on Rob's reviews. Uh, It's on a scale of one to five. So five, I would watch it start to finish every time locked in Four, I put it on and play with my phone in between scenes. I love three. This is background noise while doing housework. Two, it's a film I enjoy, but don't go out of my way to watch again. Uh, number one, it just doesn't hold up the way I remember. So, uh, BJ, as it is your first time on the show, uh, why don't you kick us off? Give us your rewatchability rating. I got to call it a four five. Good. Because I don't, I don't tend to lock in on anything unless it's new. I've never seen it. Or I am sharing it with someone who has never seen it. Because mm. I, I love the experience of sharing film or good stand-up with it's, someone. It's really intimate, isn't it? Like, if you do it the right it way, like it's, it's an extremely it intimate version of communication. Yeah, yeah. That is something that I have always enjoyed my whole life. And so that is why, for me, I will not lock in on Snatch unless I'm sharing it with someone. But it is eminently rewatchable for me because I will put it on and I will attend to other things, not just phone schmutzing, but usually, you know, other things that are meaningful. But I will constantly be checking back. You know, it's not just waiting for scenes that I like. It's just sort of, you know, it's constantly bouncing my attention back. So that is that is uh, that is my rating. But I don't like I said, I don't think I have a single five in my entire catalog unless I am sharing it with someone. So. I, I like love that. that. I love how you like sort of set that up. Yeah, yeah. The, the caveat there. I, I like how you set that up. Our friend Harrison from the basement binge that uh, is frequently on the big show with us. Um, when, when he invites Matt and I over to do his show, uh, he's got a rating scale called pick your poison and how you would interact with the film in the future. And, and it's, you know, would you never watch it again? Would you be willing to rent it? Would you uh, buy it under the right conditions? 
Um, would you stream it if it's already something that you subscribe to, um, which is kind of like his version of a two, I guess. Um, and for me, like I almost never rank something as a buy it because I just don't really buy physical medium. I don't have room in my house, you know? So like, I always have <laughs> yeah. to, Three kids um, do that to you. Yeah. I always have to like add a caveat whenever I rank something when I'm on his show. And it's, it's funny um, because, you know, I think streaming's really just done that to us. Nobody really buys a lot of movies anymore. Not I actually anymore. would buy this movie. So I, I love that you do that. Um, Eric, what is your rewatchability rating? Oh, this is a five. This was like when we talked about doing a podcast, this was the first movie I thought of. Let's do Snatch. So I thought about this and uh, I was watching this. I've seen this movie again. Like I said, BJ, you and I just together have seen this movie dozens of times. Yep. Um, it's been a while since I've seen it. And I found myself, uh, I, I actually had to do it in two sittings because I, you know, you know, work full time plus three kids that are very active and, and, you know, trying to stay involved with them and keep up on housework and everything else. Uh, and make sure to walk my wife's dog, all that kind of stuff. So I had to do it in two sittings. And when I realized that I really did need to get to bed, I found myself being upset and frustrated that I wasn't going to be able to finish this. And I think this is a very dangerous movie to try to watch while you're doing something else, because you're not going to put a lot of attention into that something else for me. But, like if yeah, I was trying to supposed to be doing, is, you're just going to forget you're doing it all together. Yeah. yeah. This, this will just, you'll hear a line or you'll know there's a line coming and you're going to wait for it. And uh, this is a movie as many times I've seen it. I didn't pick my phone up once other than like I use it, you know, as my note taking device. Uh, I wasn't scrolling social media. No. I wasn't checking email. I was I was all in uh, on this movie. So uh, this movie was a five for me. It was an easy five. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. This is easy thing. five. This is this is a really tough movie to try to do to, to multitask at all, um, at least yeah. for me. So. Um, we're going to move into now a segment we call Pantheon Points. And this is kind of one of the most fun segments that we do here on Rob's Reviews, where it's literally totally made up. It's whatever Hall of Fame or Halls of Fame you want to assign this movie to, whatever ranking you want to give this. Give it the most specific ranking you can think of. Give it the most generalized, broad ranking you can think of. It's really whatever you want it to be. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and go first. And, uh, and Eric, you're going to uh, go after me. So I've got this in a couple of different pantheons. Uh, this is in my top two movies where Brad Pitt plays an underground fighter. I hate you so much. You literally just stole my first line. Yep. And I literally had yes, in shirtless while doing so. Yes. Top two uh, while Brad Pitt mostly fights without a shirt. I freaking had that. <laughs> Listen, um, you can you can have that as your own pantheon. Uh, I also have this in my top two movies where Vinny Jones has a scene where they are trying to get something important out of a dog. <laughs> the other film we have also reviewed here on Rob's Reviews. <laughs> top five crime comedies. I'm trying to think if I've really got like The Big Lebowski is also another great comedy. crime yeah, comedy. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's my all time favorite. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. It's probably the first crime comedy that ever. Existed, yeah, right. I mean, it really depends on what you consider Goodfellas because well, it's, it's funny. Like Ocean's Eleven is fantastic. Sinatra, like, yeah. that, like the original one. Like that was a crime comedy because they were funny, like Sammy Davis Jr. Well, like, yeah, you know, one, like we said, one of, one, of the big, one of the big things about Snatch that makes it different from other crime comedies is that the previous record for crime comedy was that Ocean's Eleven, hey, look at us, yeah. we're so cool. We Whereas this is seedy... Yeah nasty 
you know, screw ups. Dirty folks. They were all pretty much screw ups. Yeah. All of them. Um, all right. So I've got uh, top five crime comedies. I'm pretty confident this would fall in my top 30 movies of all time. I think I like oh, this movie that much. Yeah. I think it's in my top 30. I originally wrote down top 25 and then I hedged my bet. Slightly top disappointing. 30. I thought you would be more narrow. I really I did. feel I like be more narrow. Uh, I feel like, I don't change it because of me. Just be authentic. And yeah, my here's the problem is. I wanted, I really thought I was going to put a top 15, but then it's just like, okay, how many Indiana Jones movies are there that are good? How many mm, Avengers movies are there that are good? How many Star Wars movies are there that are good? I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, I um, And I'm also going to say this is top five at a minimum of best use of music to underscore a film. Yeah, yeah. Goodfellas yeah. is the is the like gold standard. Goodfellas might be it's gold strong. standard. It's strong. That's yeah. the barometer, right? That's that's the high water mark. So I, I've got you know I know that Goodfellas would be my number one. I'm not con- confident I could name four other films, but I was like I feel like top five uh, best use of music to underscore a film. Right. Uh, I felt like this is where I've got that. So I like that. Uh, Eric, what pantheons do you have snatch in? All right, so straight up, and maybe I should have disclosed this before we even started, so everybody knew where I was coming from. But this is literally top five all time Hall of Fame best most favorite movies in my life top five okay it's a big deal this is my most favorite guy Ritchie flick which is kind of saying something because i'm a big fan of guy Ritchie. loved the two sherlock holmes movies big fan of lock stock and two smoking barrels this was my first jason statham film and i actually introduced my brother he might not admit this but i introduced him to jason statham from this movie Dude, you should watch Snatch. This is my favorite heist movie when the heist happens at the very beginning of the film and it's actually not a feature of the film. Um, Top two, Brad Pitt as a majority of the film fighter. Top ten, most quotable films ever. And top seven in terms of monologue because of Bull Tooth Tony's replica Desert Eagle .50 thing and Bricktop's nemesis uh, speech is it, in this. It might be top five, but just conservatively, I'll put it top seven. Overall, how many monologues have you ever heard that are great? This movie has like three that are legendary. So I'll say at least top seven. Mm, good stuff. It's hard to argue with a lot of that. All right, BJ. So you kind of got an idea of how our Pantheon point segment works. Uh, What Pantheons do you place this movie into? I have it in my top two movies where Dennis Farina plays a completely insufferable prick. Oh, good job. That's a good job. (laughs) Because it's, it's number two because the other one is go get your shine box, which is the name of Uh, my good fellas play. I have it in, I would say, my top five for sources of hilarious British profanity. Because mm. there, there's some other great ones. There's some other great ones. But this one is, is right up there for Pantheon British profanity laughs. Gosh, what other type Pantheon sort of listings? Because you guys have nailed a lot of the ones that I was sort of thinking of, too. Well, um, okay, too. Do you, do you think it's top 25 top 30 
by the way, we, nobody ever counts. So if we review yeah. 30 movies and you put all of them in your top 20, like, yeah, that's yeah. one of the Nobody's things I'm always super <laughs> concerned about I is definitely... like, I'm going to put 180 movies in my top. Yeah, yeah. I can definitely see it working its way into my top 30. Yeah. Uh, if we were to go non-sci-fi or fantasy mm. edition of that list, you know, uh, top 20 movies that are set in the real world, well, you sort of got to have a different scale because part of the beauty of the sci-fi and the fantasy is that it takes you out of the world. But that's also another credit to this movie is the quality of the world building that they put into it. But yeah, that's that's where I would put it pantheon wise. I might say that it's in my top ten for for quality of monologue. Mm. Like if you were to judge a movie just on the strength of its monologues, yeah, pretty easily top ten. Okay, Eric, I think you had one where it was top seven most quotable movies. I think that's I think that's a good one. I like that one. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I hadn't thought about where that would rank for that. So that's why I kind of like this segment. Just you can make up literally whatever you want. And uh, and that's how we do that here. Guys, that's going to do it for our review of Snatch. Uh, I would certainly encourage listeners to uh, check out the show uh, everywhere that you that you interact on the Internet. You can email the show mgttmpodcast at gmail.com. It's just the initials for Matt Goes to the Movies podcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to hear more of BJ, send us a note. We'll, we'll get them back sometime. Um, you can find the show on Facebook. You can join the official Facebook group. Uh, you can find the show on Twitch, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. I'm still calling it Twitter. I'm not calling it X. I'm, just not, I, I'm not ready to no, do that. No. I'm just not doing that. Not, um, yeah. I guess maybe it's maybe I'm just old. This is our boom either way. moment right here where it's just like, I'm, you know what? <laughs> I'm so. not learning anything new. I'm all done. <laughs> I, think, I think so. So again, that'll do it for us. Uh, make sure you check out the show notes where you've got the link to check out the playlist and uh, lots of good stuff coming. I know the summer has been maybe a little short on content from the channel. We are talking about all kinds of fun stuff. The summer has been busy for Matt, for sure. Uh, summer's been busy for me as well, uh, but we had a lot of fun putting this one together and uh, we're talking about a couple other things, both here in the EPU and on the big show. So make sure you stay subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. That way you don't miss a single episode of all the fun stuff that we've got planned for you, the listener, and make sure you send us an email. Uh, make sure you rate the show wherever you are downloading it. Check it out on Podchaser. It's a great place to just congregate all of the reviews that are out there. And we will see you very soon here at Matt Goes to the Movies. 